Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit I don't give away easily. This is my only one chance in the Formula One world's world, so I had to do my best because we are fighting on the track. Who can forget Yuki Tsunoda's last lap lunge on Lance Stroll in the Bahrain Grand Prix? It was opportunistic and outrageously daring and a great taste of what's to come from the young Japanese driver. Yet I felt I'd seen it all before because Yuki's heroics reminded me of the last Japanese driver to race in Formula One, Kamui Kobayashi. He was equally daring and skillful, if a tiny bit taller, and I'm delighted to say that Kamui is my guest this week. Welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. I'm so pleased to have Kamui on the show because not only is he a great talker and a true fan favourite, he was always so exciting to watch. Anyone who was at Suzuka in 2012, as I was, will never forget his day of days. He finished third for Sauber in front of his beloved fans who chanted his name from the grandstands for hours after the race. It was both a reminder of the passion for Formula One in Japan and the skill that Kamui had behind the wheel of a Formula One car. In all, he contested 75 Formula One races, with that 2012 season being his most competitive. During his career, he carved out a reputation as a tyre whisperer, a skill his Sauber teammate Sergio Perez learnt from him and continues to exploit to this day in a Red Bull. We caught up just before the start of the season while Kamui was at home in Japan. As expected, he was enlightening and funny, and he wasn't afraid to share his opinions on anything and everything, including that man Yuki Tsunoda. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Kamui, great to see you. Look, where in the world are you at the minute? You're the most international racing driver I know. Uh, where where are you at the minute? Uh, just currently back in Japan. I uh, just need to, uh, something to do. And uh, just uh, spending a couple of weeks here. Just after Daytona, I went to the test in Spain, Aragon, and uh, straight away back to Japan. And I'm going back to Europe uh, next week. How is life in Japan at the moment? Uh, as you know, with uh, the COVID-19, for the moment, we have a kind of uh, lockdown, but uh, it's not a uh, very hard restriction. So we are allowed to uh, going out without uh, any permission. Uh, obviously, I think restaurants have to close like 8 o'clock. Uh, it's, it's not all about Japan. It's uh, the huge places like Tokyo and, uh, yeah, I mean, Osaka as well. Uh, yeah, it's uh, still difficult to say, I mean, if uh, the COVID is uh, improving. But uh, yeah, as soon as kind of lockdown, it's less people in cases. So, you know, we were in the game still. It felt very strange not being at Suzuka last year. Yeah, I think uh, I had the same mind. I mean, you know, uh, Japanese Formula 1 fan, it's, uh, it's so ex- extremely exciting to, to watch the Formula 1 in Suzuka. And obviously, I think we see a lot of races around uh, in Europe, but uh, not in Japan. So, uh, as I said, the calendar, I think uh, when you having the Formula One in Suzuka, it's kind of like historical circuit, because in this time, I would say in the Formula One track, it's a little bit, you know, the not much risk in terms of, you know, escape zone, uh, in terms of gravel. Uh, I think still uh, Suzuka is one of the challenging circuits especially in, I think now in the Formula 1, it's, it's really fast. And once you've got uh, this speed in Suzuka, I would say it's extremely the fun place for as a driver, I guess. It's definitely old school. I'll agree with you there. Do you, do you think it's the best track in the world? Yeah, I think uh, Suzuka or Spa, uh, it's one of the, I think, uh, very challenging and old school track. I think Spa is getting less risky on the track because, uh, you know, uh, off tra- offline, I would say there's a lot of asphalt now. But uh, Suzuka, I mean, still, there's a, a lot of challenging track. While we're talking Suzuka, can we talk about your day of days? Suzuka 2012. Kobe! 
Pesci just beats Jensen Button, home for third place, and for the first time since 1990, a Japanese driver will stand on the podium here at Suzuka, and for Sauber, it's utter delight for Kamui Kobayashi, it is total dreamland here in his home Grand Prix. Good job, Kamui, good job, good job, Kamui. How do you reflect on that weekend now? I think the uh, car was uh, pretty strong. It's not every truck, but uh, once we go in like high-speed truck, I think our car was uh, quite competitive. As you see, Spa, I think I was uh, second in quarry. You know, I think uh, we had a really good car, and obviously we had uh, quite bad luck uh, through the season in terms of speed. Uh, speed was good, but uh, the result always we had something like we lose a pistol, we lose something at start, uh, like Spa, it's a bit shame. But uh, I think in the end, I think I managed to, to finish out in Suzuka, but uh, at least uh, we, we deserve what we have in the car. And uh, I think we made it uh, in my home Grand Prix, it was, uh, I think, great, great atmosphere, as I see. So, you know, I think uh, one of my highlights in the, in the Formula One career, I would say. Definitely. And you qualified fourth for that race. What did you think was possible going into the race? We were not sure if we can manage that speed before we start the race because we knew that uh, I had a quite good qualify, but I think pure performance in terms of the, the car performance, I think there's a lot of strong car. I think definitely, I think Red Bull was really strong. As I see, Ferrari was strong as well. And when you see McLaren was strong, so there's like six competitors already uh, strong in you know, the performance. So for sure, I think our car was a bit behind of them. Uh, it's quite natural. <laughs> but uh, to manage third, it's an incredible job from the team. I think all the pit stop, I think when we start, I think start procedure was good. And uh, I think setting uh, the, the start was, uh, was good as well. So I think everything went to really uh, as we expect, uh, as we can maximize uh, the performance, you know, I think to get uh, this result with uh, the, that car is maximum result I can have. Can you describe the atmosphere when you were standing on the podium? If memory serves, the crowd were chanting your name. It was the most atmospheric Suzuka I'd ever experienced. Yeah, I mean, you know, I had really thankful for the all the Japanese fans. Uh, I think uh, I was sad. Uh, obviously, I think like I felt like winning. <laughs> so it feel really bit sorry for the Seb, uh, Philippe, because I think Seb is always strong in Suzuka. And Philippe, I think uh, he was not long time being the podium. So he just came back second uh, after long, I think, I don't know, maybe one or two season. So he should be really happy, but uh, you know, I think in the end, I think we all celebrate what we got in the in Suzuka, and I think all that from the spectator was uh, was fantastic. And when I wasn't on the podium in the Formula One, uh, I was like, I felt it's it's not an easy way to get podium, but uh, as soon as you've been there, I think you feel, uh, you know, I think you did really uh, deserve your job when you made it. Did you feel a lot of pressure that weekend from the fans, from the media? Because as you say, it was a fast track. You had a good car. There was a chance coming in, wasn't there, that you were going to get a good result. What was it like coming in? To be honest, I think it, when you're there in the Formula One, uh, you have always pressure. So I have no nothing to say that uh, it was extremely like something different in Suzuka or not. I mean, I would say... It's the uh, same level of the pressure as usual. But uh, I knew that if I made good results in Suzuka, it would be something different. So that's why uh, I think we got a couple of chances and get podium in last, I mean, 2012. But uh, obviously, I think we couldn't manage it. So just I was trying to wish myself, believe myself, you know, everything going well instead of having some trouble. And did you get any crazy gifts from the fans? Because the Japanese fans are unlike anywhere else in the world, aren't they? 
Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's the opposite. I think for the, the foreigner driver, obviously, I think they got something funny present. But、uh, when you're a Japanese driver, you know, I think we, were, we knew that、uh, I would not be like extremely happy if we get a special hat or, you know, something like that. So they would not give actually.、Uh, they give me like、uh, my picture to me. Actually, I'm not like, well, if I get my picture myself, which is not like something I wanted to, but、uh, yeah, I think this is the most surprise for me always when you're back in Japan.、Uh, you know, Japanese fans always give me something special. This picture is one for the strange way, but、uh, yeah, I think still, still having pictures、uh, is good. And how did you get from the Suzuka Circuit Hotel to the paddock? I remember reading that Ayrton Senna, at the height of his fame, used to have to get a helicopter from the hotel to the track because he just couldn't physically get on the ground from one to the other because the fans stopped him. No, I think we are not as much as,、uh, you know, the big, <laughs> like Ayrton Senna, so we can allow to, to get there by car. You know, there's a, a lot of the fans waiting way to the circuit, but I mean, still. I think we were allowed to access to the, the track without、uh, any problem. So, you know, I think、uh, the people are a little bit、uh, more calm now. And、uh, yeah, I think、uh, still I feel it's great because before going to race, I mean, whatever track, I think、uh, that was only Suzuka is something special.、Uh, so, you know, I think that's a really good way. And I'm really proud. As part of、uh, Japanese motorsports. For two of your three years at Sauber, you were teammates with Checo Perez.、Mm-hmm. Are you still friends with him? Yeah,、uh, I had contact, I think,、uh, last year, end of last year. And he said very、uh, recently that one of the reasons he is so good with his tyre preservation is because of you. He learnt how to conserve his tyres through you. So, where did you learn to do it? <laughs> no, not, not really. Someone not teaching me, but、uh, I just、uh, developed myself. As I'm Japanese, obviously, if I have always q u e s t i o n about tires, I just always go into the Buddhiston to have、uh, some idea to talk, chat, and、uh, basically to make the, you know, I think,、uh, save the tires or to make good tires, for example, you need. Understand how tire works properly. And obviously, I think、uh, always this idea gives、uh, good help. And also, I think、uh, that year in Zalva, we had、uh, the Pierre、uh, who is in Red Bull now. You know, the French guys. Pierre Vache. He was、uh, coming from the, yeah, who coming from Michelin. Yes. And he was、uh, working for specialists in the tires at that, that time. And just we, we talk a lot of stuff on tires, and、uh, just, you know, nobody teaching me, but just、uh, I try to manage myself to understand how to manage the tire in the end. But how do you know, Kamui, when to push and when to save? Okay, when you are the new tire, for example, you can push as much as you want. But to get the grip, for example,、uh, you know, Driver is always using 100% of tire performance, but if you say, okay, if amount of the grip is, you say,、uh, 1000 level, for example, how you build a tire to the you know, frame lap, you can put like 1000 uh, 1, grip level, for example. It's, it's all everything like how you manage to the, the temperature、um, between the front and rear, and、uh, even how you make the You know, through the one lap where you want to gain the lap time. And you need to calculate yourself. So, you, from practice, you try to work in the tire front and rear and how you drop through the one lap, for example. And you just,、uh, you know, find out what is the compromise, best compromise in one lap. And in the race, if you push, of course, tire will drop. So, you don't need to push. But just you have to make sure that how you push, how you get speed. Uh, without push. I mean, this is most important. You have to be in the like, kind of 90% driving. And if your tires drop, for example, you have to find a priority where you have to save the tire. 
which part and which corner. I think this is always you need a calculation and you need to understand where is most energy you spend in the corner, in the truck, you know. So it's not you save the tires every corner. You need to save the tires, particularly where. I mean, this is you need to understand, you need to study, uh, you need to make it to, to walk tires. So you might not be the fastest through the fast corners because you're saving your tires when that's where they're using the most energy, I suppose. Exactly. But uh, how? I mean, this if you drive slow, it's just slow. So you have to understand how. So, for example, yeah, accelerating or you still keeping the carrying speed. Normally, I think in Formula One, you drop the tire on the rear. But how you manage to uh, save the rear tires? Because if you save at the corner where you are not impacted to lose lap time, for example, you try to manage the tire, and where you can have a big gaining lap time in the one corner, you try to still a little bit aggressive in the tire. So you need a you know the management of the the tire in one corner, uh, in one one truck, I would say. Did you have to change your approach to tire conservation with Pirelli? the sort of heat-sensitive Pirelli rubber versus yeah. the Bridgestone before? You had to, a, yeah. a new approach. Yeah. So the Bridgestone basically uh, kind of more grip on the original grip. Pirelli was uh, weak on the lateral grip. So it's basically in the Pirelli, you need to save the tire in longitudinal, so which is on the traction side. When you accelerate, for example, you need really carefully to accelerate. And for example, if you use everything in the entry, you will not have any traction in the exit. So obviously you lose more lap time. So you try to not push in the entry like Pirelli, but you give a little bit chance to not lose lap time on the exit. And you try to manage that uh, don't lose so much like kind of lap time. And in terms of traction, you've almost got a bit of traction control in your right foot have you? you've got a very sensitive right foot yeah i mean we need it because this is how you manage the tires you know tires always like yeah living tires life it's like same as the human if you ask too much tire give up that's why you know it's always management so i'm not like driving super fast in the quarry for example i'm just managing the tire and this makes a completely different uh, lap time compared to other. On the subject of Checo, how do you think he'll get on at Red Bull this year? How do you think he'll stack up against Max Verstappen? He will be strong, and he will have definitely have a performance. It's just for me, it's matter how he fit with a car, because each manufacturer have different car. And for example, uh, if it's like if I say simple things, it's like. If you have more oversteer car or understeer car, and this is, you know, each manufacturer have different way to de- design the car. And I guess, I think Max is, is something I think uh, he fit with Red Bull car, current Red Bull car. Uh, for example, if he's going to other team, for example, I'm not sure he can bring the performance as much as like Red Bull. For example, he's bringing performance in Red Bull more than 110%. Because he fit with the car. But for example, if he goes to Mercedes, I'm not sure he can manage to bring the performance as much as like 110%. Maybe he can manage 100% for sure because he's a good driver. But I think more matter how you fit with the car and obviously the team as well, you know, regarding the communication, all the stuff. So he will be good for sure. But uh, as I say, I think Max is uh, really fit with Red Bull car. So, you know, I think that's why it's a little bit hard to say if he can beat or not. But for sure, he can do a good job there. Yeah, he's going to have his work cut out, isn't he? Now, look, when we talk about 2012, we've discussed Suzuka. You finish on the podium. He couldn't be smiling more if he'd have won the race. In Formula One. Kamui Kobayashi, the fans in front of us, right on their feet. And for Kobayashi, smiles. For Massa, relief and smiles for Fettel. Did you know already at that point that Sauber were not going to keep you for 2013? Yeah, most likely I knew. 
didn't mention the career, but uh, yeah, I think so far, yeah, I feel it. You'd had a very good season. How frustrated were you not to stay with the team? As you know, I think uh, Zaba has financial problem, so I was not surprised. I'm really uh, thankful to get uh, three opportunity with Zaba, and I had a positive podium. You know, uh, I would say where I come from is is a bit far away from the, the you know the Formula One. Uh, I'm not like my family is not involved in motorsports at all. So, you know, just uh, when I young, when I was younger, I just wanted to be the race driver, even though I don't know what is Formula One when I start uh, go kart. So, you know, I think uh, being the Formula One from there, I think uh, already I feel something different than what I expect. So, you know, it's a bit shame because I'm not doing so bad job that year, but still I lose my seat in Zaba. It's a bit shame. But another time, uh, I have no other offer uh, coming from or other teams. So I was not enough strong to show what I can do in the Formula One. So, you know, I think this is uh, in the game. As you see, the Formula One is only 20 seat available per year. So it's not much. So that's why, you know, in the end, I think this is the game in the Formula One. To be, to be honest, I had dreaming to be in the Formula One when I was young. And be there is something special. And that's why still I enjoy my life. Uh, I still enjoy my racing career, not Formula One, but uh, over the world. In the end, I think my experience in Formula One was... Uh, you know, it's really fantastic for me. You say there's no motorsport history in your family. So why did a why did a nine year old Kamui Kobayashi want to get in a go kart for the first time? Where did that come from? I watched the TV, like normal TV, and I saw that uh, you know I want when I understand myself, I want to drive the car, but I was not enough age at that time, and always I asked my father, I want to drive the car like go-kart or whatever, uh, you are not enough age. So I, I was always like, well, I'm giving up myself. But uh, when I was like eight or nine years old, I found out on TV, uh, like already younger than my age, one of the kids was uh, driving go-kart and I saw TV that, and uh, I just called my father and I say, I want to drive that one. And uh, it was just lent car, you know, lentil car, go-kart. So just he, bring me next day and uh, you know I was really excited to, to drive in these kind of things and then you know just keep saying I want to go I want to go I want to go and <laughs> one day he bought me <laughs> this is where I started actually so yeah. it's it's quite strange as you see especially now I think all the Formula 1 arrival driver is a lot of money around or you know father was in, in the motorsports involved so you know, I think like my 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 starting career was uh, quite special, I would say. And did your dad take you to Suzuka? Because you were born near Osaka, so not too far from Suzuka. No, no, no. Uh, you know, we have a so much small country, but obviously I was in the go-kart. And the go-kart, we don't need to go uh, in Suzuka just from my home. 30 minutes or 40 minutes, I have a one of the small like, go-kart places. And I grew up there for a couple of years and I went to like big races in Japan and I win couple races there. And I signed with a Yamaha because at that time, I think Yamaha was made a go-kart and even the engine. Uh, so I became a part of the uh, Yamaha support driver. And once uh, you are support driver of Yamaha, you can have uh, the audition for the Toyota Young Program, Young Drivers Program. And I joined that and I passed. So I got the uh, opportunity being the Toyota development driver when I was like 14. But uh, obviously I have uh, not enough age to do, you know, uh, open wheel car. So I wait two years. And then uh, when I was 16, I was beginning to be development driver for Toyota. Whereabouts did you do that first test, examination, call it what you will, for Toyota? Was that... This was before uh, they owned... In Hokkaido. In Hokkaido. It's Hokkaido. Bef- it was before they owned yeah. Fuji, wasn't it? So, Yeah, but uh, and the Fuji was closed because they had to renew for the Formula 1. And that's why we went to Hokkaido. Can you describe then where you would be now 
without Toyota? Would you have had a racing career without their input? Maybe I was in Honda then. Because, uh, to be honest, I had uh, two offers when I was uh, 14 years old. So I have uh, one call from Toyota to be joined in the audition. And at uh, the same time, I had uh, the Honda the, the Honda school, like uh, Takuma Owen and Tsunoda were there. So I had uh, this opportunity as well from the Honda, but already I passed Toyota audition. So that's why I decided to go Toyota. Obviously, the Honda was uh, even still happy. I go to the Honda school and I'm still development Toyota driver, but the Toyota was not happy with this. And uh, I decided <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. yeah. So uh, without Honda, I would be, uh, without Toyota, I would be in maybe Honda school. Toyota very much took you under their wing and did they sort of, was it their decision to take you to Europe or was that your decision? No, no, their decision. Because that time I think Toyota uh, was uh, still in the Formula One and uh, they want to make the Japanese uh, Formula One driver. So I was one of the, you know, guy who uh, sending to Europe. There's a uh, few guys around as well. It's not only me. There's uh, two more Japanese. But uh, yeah, I think I was uh, one there then. And you did Formula 3. And in fact, you were Vettel's, Sebastian Vettel's teammate in 2006. Formula Luno, I started. So two year Formula Luno and I went to Formula 3. So my first year was uh, Sebastian and then Paul de Lester and Guido was in my teammate. And my second year in Formula 3 was uh, Grajan, Hukenburg, me, Tom Dumont was uh, my teammate. So it's very strong. Very, <laughs> very strong championship. You're right. And Vettel in particular, you obviously saw him at close quarters. What stood out about him in 2006? In the Formula 3, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he was already driving Formula 1 last year already. He was doing the sort of uh, Friday practice sessions for BMW Sauber, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I think he, he was second year in the Formula 3 and, uh, you know, everybody expect he would be good. So, you know, it was a good benchmark for me. But in the end, he lost the championship to the, against the pole director. So, you know, I think Formula 3 is something very special. But at least I think to have a very competitive teammate, it's, uh, it's good to screw how you drive the car. And in the end, I think uh, I learned a lot in, in Formula 3, how I drive the racing car. Because I win the championship in the Formula you know, uh, Italian and the European Championship. And I went to the Formula 3. And, uh, you know, I think Formula 3 is the one step, you know, more downforce, more power. And it's a completely different way to drive. So in the end, I think uh, it's good school to learn how you drive. And then if we fast forward to 2009, You've been a Toyota driver since you were 14. And then at Suzuka, uh, funnily enough, uh, Timo Glock has uh, a very unfortunate accident, damages his legs. There was talk of you dry racing that weekend, but the FIA uh, wouldn't allow that. Then comes Brazil. Just talk us through the debut and how it came about, how nervous you are. My experience uh, when I driven uh, Suzuka was... You know, I think after February test, I would say I was not driving at all in the Formula 1. So I did a couple of laps in Suzuka on the wet. And when I hear I'm going to Brazil for the race, I was fast. I think concern was uh, physically probably hard. Because if you are not driving, you know, at that speed, and especially I think you driven in Suzuka, but it was wet. So it's, uh, it's quite different wet to dry. So I think the first concern was in the, you know, the physical stuff. But uh, even I never driven Brazil as well. So, you know, you have no chance, no time to do practicing simulator. Just watching YouTube stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is only how you run. What you call a baptism of fire. Yeah. But how supportive were the team and, and how quickly do you feel you got up to speed? Because also I remember Jensen Button getting pretty vocal after the race because of course he was fighting for the championship and you kept him behind you for a few laps yeah i mean you know i think if you think okay jensen is fighting for one championship i'm fighting for my career in the formula one as well so it's you know for me i don't give away easily because i'm doing what i can do 
And this is my probably maybe my only one chance in the Formula One world as well. So just I need, I had to do my best, whatever world champion, whatever, you know, I mean, this doesn't matter because we are fighting for the, you know, on the track in the same category car. So, you know, I think this is quite normal stuff. Did you talk to Jensen after the race or was it all through the media? No, all through the media, to be honest. We then go to Abu Dhabi, the, the last race of the year. And you finish ahead of your teammate, Yano Truly. I mean, really, those two races couldn't have gone much better for you. I was surprised. My first stint, I was pretty good with a medium tyre. I had a one-stop strategy with, uh, I think, only one. I was sort of lead after one-stop strategy. And when I was doing that, uh, my first stint, my engineer was uh, saying, oh, Kamui, you are fighting for podium. I was like, surprised. Wow. I thought, it's quite easy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> ah, this Formula 1 stuff. <laughs> yeah, but uh, to be honest, I mean, when I went to second uh, stint with the softer compound, I struggled a little bit in the pace and uh, I dropped to P6. But I think already still good, I would say, P6 with, uh, uh, with my limitation of the experience in the Formula 1. So, you know, I was pretty happy with my result. And did you have any idea as you crossed the line in Abu Dhabi, that Toyota were about to pull out of Formula One? No, even I didn't saw that about. I mean, they, I knew that they have learned more about this, but, uh, you know, normally they don't quit straight away. Just maybe they have, uh, you know, probably one more year extended. And that's why I was not really worried about this. So it's a price. Had you even had a conversation with them about you, you racing for them in 2010? Not really, but uh, after the Abu Dhabi, uh, they had that uh, phone call and uh, I went to a meeting in Germany and I thought it's going to, you know, like kind of, uh, you know, offer for the 2010. But uh, actually, I think the meeting was for, you know, the Toyota is living in Formula 1. So... <laughs> I was uh, very shocked. It's mad, isn't it? Because they had finally, they had their driver in Formula One with them. The performance was picking up. I remember Pedro de la Rosa telling me that he used the Toyota chassis the following year with Pirelli. It was their sort of mule car for, for testing the tyres. He said it was sensational. Really good car. So it was all coming together. Yeah, because I developed this car, I knew what uh, they have in technology. To be honest, if they do one more year, they will win. Because I knew that engine can update like, uh, they say 13 to 14 horsepower already. And they had, uh, it's kind of, you know, already exact. So a certain amount of speed, they can reduce the drag and they can get top speed. Already they had this one the blow diffuser, they already had in this car. So I think technology, in time technology, they are one the head of the, you know, what they have. Because do you remember 2010? I think that the manufacturer starting working for the, the blow diffuser. So like Zauber, we, we employed like in the middle season, but uh, Toyota was everything already got and even the f stuff. So I think in time technology, I think they will be really good. So it's really shame. Is there still a sense of frustration within Toyota in Cologne that Formula One didn't work out? To be honest, if they did one more year, it worked out. They could win. And that's why I feel a little bit shame. But uh, in the Formula One, I mean, it's too expensive with Formula One, I would say. You are doing like same spirit of racing, even 24 Le Mans, even you do IndyCar, for example. You're fighting for the position. But amount of the, the money, the budget is so different, you know. So, of course, I think it's, it's quite normal. Do you think they could be tempted back to Formula One now that there's a cost cap and the costs are under control? 100% no. Because I'm a Toyota driver. Yeah. And, I know. and you know this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, of course, you've got the hypercar now for Le Mans. How, how much of the Formula One facility is used as part of the, the WEC program now? Not much, actually. Because, for example, engine is making in there, but it's for the WRC. So actually, the, the WEC engine is made in Japan. And uh, only the car 
I think made in the in the factory in Germany. So design, for example, they're doing Japan and Germany together. So you know, I think the way the facility where they used to use, I think they lent to some other company. So I think the in terms of facility is much smaller, but still they're using the wind tunnel because they're the two wind tunnel. So they lent to some other Formula One probably, and uh, yeah, using four weeks sometimes. And then when Toyota pulled out of Formula One and you went to Salvo, did you still retain links with them, or were you one hundred percent Salvo driver with with nothing, no no link to Toyota? To be honest, not much. I had a contract, but uh, I tried to determine the uh, contract, you know, determine it because, you know, Toyota is not involved in the Formula One. And, you know, still, if I have a, I walk to Zava, for example, and if I had a contract with Toyota, it's something a bit strange. So I try and I took one year to determine it. How much of a loss for Formula One in Japan is Honda pulling out at the end of this coming year, do you think? It's big, to be honest. But, uh, you know, already I think uh, in, in time, to, uh, long time, in the, I think during Senna time, we lost a lot. Even my time, I think uh, people was it's getting more people, but it's not as much as, uh, you know, 1990 or 1980 something, you know. Probably, I think, 90, I think 2000, was on the on the top, I would say, and my time on you know drop, but still quite reasonable number compared to other truck. But uh, as I would say, I think if you are, uh, I mean Honda is pulling away, uh, which means it will be more difficult. And will it affect the number of young drivers coming through? I think yeah, and uh, I think still Honda has tried to develop young drivers, but. Uh, uh, we were thinking for what aim for, you know, because if Honda driver developed a driver in Europe, what is final goal for Honda? Because what Honda is doing now in Europe, maybe uh, biggest championship now after Formula One, maybe Indica. Yeah, I think that's it. So, you know, it's in the United States. So it's a bit different. Can we talk about a young guy coming in? Yuki Sonoda. Yuki Sonoda claims points on his Formula One debut, becomes the 65th driver to get points on his debut in the sport. What do you know of this guy? What can we expect of him in Formula One this year? No, he will be good, I think. You know, before he joined Honda school, he came to Toyota school and I was uh, teaching him. How long ago was that? Was uh, I think when he was uh, fourteen or fifteen years old, I guess. Well, he's going to be good at looking after his tyres. We know that if you <laughs> if you taught him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I spoke him sometimes. Even I think I spoke him uh, last month. I think he will be good, but just uh, you know, matter of uh, how he fit and how he can really have a. Good match with the car and the team as well. I think it looks like there's a big support from Red Bull and, uh, you know, the team. So I think he should be okay. When I found the Pierre Gasly is doing really good in the Alpha Tauri, probably I think he had a really, you know, very tough driver next to him. You know, finger crossed, I think he matched with the car because he was good in the Act 2. But when you look Formula 3, but not, uh, you know, very special. So, you know, I think he can be good if he matches the car. What's the single best piece of advice you could give him coming into Formula One? I'm not worried. I think he can make performance, but he need to have a very good manager. <laughs> the potholes of the Formula One paddock. Would you mean just in terms of looking ahead at future contracts yeah exactly i mean for the future contract because i think for sure you know he can have a good result but he could have maybe some mistake as well uh in mistake he need to have someone to explain well to the team you know he need a kind of filter to manage his self because he's still young and he don't have enough experience in the motorsports so he need to know someone can help him to manage his mind and his amount of the, the confidence by himself. 
So that's why I would say, it's no doubt with his talent, his speed, he'll be good in one day. But his his point is how he managed to image to the team, how brand his name in the Formula One. I think this is most important. What I feel. And having to to deal with Helmut Marco as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. He's a hard taskmaster, isn't he? I guess so. <laughs> Come over. There's one one part of your F1 career that we haven't discussed yet. That is Caterham. So at the end of 2012, Sauber go a different way. They replace both you and Perez with Hulkenberg and Gutierrez, and you spend a year on the sidelines. Uh, you do a bit of work for Ferrari. Now, is it true that you turn down? an expanded role with Ferrari in 2014 in favour of racing for Caterham? Yep. Explain the thinking behind that. It's very difficult to decide. You know, I was in the Ferrari in the contract, but in contract there's no like kind of uh, opportunity being there in the programme in the Formula 1. I can be the GT programme, but it's not uh, in the Formula 1. Maybe I can do some tests. But uh, after one year, I have no much test really. So, you know, I think I was not really, you know, wishes being there and just, uh, I have no imagination that I will be in the racing in the Ferrari. That's why I have another option that uh, Skateham is probably not strong team, but just uh, in, in being the Formula One in the race seat, I think this is a, more realistic can be another option if I made really good results there. You know, I try and uh, I bet myself, but uh, already I feel it's not much option. And that's why I try, it's kind of doing the betting myself. <laughs> what was the Caterham like to drive? Uh, it was a very difficult car. I mean, as you see the car, I think uh, compared to other, you know, team, it's a, it's a little bit different shape. And when I driven there, it's, uh, I think already, I think Luno was struggling on that year. So we got uh, Luno power unit. You know, we had a quite weak in the power unit already and we had uh, no good car. So it was very difficult to be honest. But uh, in terms of maybe budget, I think it's not surprising really. Must have been a very frustrating year. And then let's throw it forward. You, since then, have carved out a wonderful career with Toyota in the World Endurance Championship. You're racing in Formula Nippon as well, back home in Japan. How tough do you find sharing a car in, in WEC with teammates? For me, it's more simple because in the Formula One, you have to make your car. And uh, like endurance race, you have to make car, of course. But it's more kind of, we have to compromise all three drivers. And in the end, what you can do is what you can do. It's your job. Uh, in the end, I think I enjoy more racing in the endurance in the end because in the Formula One, I mean, you, you say, yes, it's, it's fighting, sprint race. It all depends on your result. But uh, it's sometimes it's a lot. It's very important in Formula One what do you have. For example, uh, if you have a good car, for sure, you can have result. If you have bad car, it's nearly no chance. And endurance race is something I feel different because if you have bad car, but you know, still you can show your performance because you have uh, endurance race, which makes completely different than sprint. You can have a time management, you can have a, you know, different strategy, you know, still try to manage the car in one piece because if you do 24 hour, you can damage the car easily. So even you have no best car, you have some wish, hope for winning. How frustrated, how angry do you get when a teammate damages the car? No, I mean, in the end, I think this is a it's shame, but I mean, this is race. And in the end, I think we need to communicate with the teammate what he has to manage. So in the end, it's all responsibility as the, you know, team relationship. So, you know, the, my team is like uh, in the Toyota, me and Mike and Jose. As always, we communicate really good and we knew that uh, what we can do and uh, what we can do, just communicate everything, you know. And I think uh, we're really having good connection uh, regarding the, you know, we have to do on the track. 
And in the end, I think even he wants to drive a mistake, maybe it can be my mistake. It's, this is in the end teamwork. So, you know, in the end, we have to share the time, but share the car. It's pretty good. I enjoy it a lot, to be honest, even we damage the car. <laughs> are they mates or are they just, are, are they still rivals in some way? Oh, no, no. It's mate more. Now, Kamui, what have you got to do to win Le Mans? Just need luck. We are always quicker. <laughs> always yeah, you are. Luck. That's the point. Always quickest. But quickest in Le Mans is always have something. So we were sometimes joking. Okay, we have to drive slow. Otherwise, we never get luck. <laughs> this is always what we are joking. They say that Le Mans chooses you, not the other way around. Don't yeah, they? exactly. You know, I mean, still, this is uh, good because at least if you are a racer, you have to drive fast. And we were always managing there. You know, every year we were quickest. Now, I know Alonso, Fernando Alonso wasn't in your car when he was doing his two seasons with Toyota. But how much did you enjoy having him in the team? Uh, did anything surprise you about Fernando? No, no. I, I think I knew from the point of time. And, you know, he is really very strong and he know what he has to do in the car. So he was very good in teams from the beginning. It's one of the surprise for me. He was extremely good on the traffic management. <laughs> because in the Formula One, you don't need traffic management. But when he came, he was extremely good with this. And in the night. How different is it at night? Apart from the obvious, it's dark. But is it much more challenging? Does it require a lot more risk from you, the driver? No, no. I think uh, if you know what you have to do, it's the same, to be honest. You are running the same track just different temperature. So just you have to be careful on the outlap of the safety car, whatever, you know, full course yellow, whatever, you know. I mean, this is the way you need to be careful because tires will be cold. But uh, otherwise, I think uh, our headlight really big. So uh, I think visually it's okay. Uh, I felt if you will get used to this, it's not really a surprise. When you say Fernando was very good at night, what do you mean by that then? I think he was very good. In, in the temperature in the tires, because his driving was very aggressive. So he was more just struggling on the day, and he was very good in the night. So he always kept a good temperature in the night. That's why he had a really good speed. Well, in the beginning, we didn't realize this, but Luman was, he was very good in the night, and we realized, I think his best stint was in the night, not day. And after he realized, he tried to always jumping the car as much as the coolest moment because he knew that he would be good. <laughs> <laughs> He's so competitive, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. I hope you reminded him of Valencia 2010, Brazil 2012, yeah. when you overtook him in Formula One. Yeah, I remember. Alonso, of course, on those medium compound tyres. Looks like he's more confident, although he gets a little bit out of shape in the middle of turn three. And that gives Button some breathing space. But Kobayashi is coming at him. Kobayashi then down in the braking zone of turn four. And he goes past Alonso. The Sauber is through. Fabulous. Sauber Ferrari passes the Ferrari Works car and uh, now starts very much interfering with Alonso's plans. I remember that uh, when, I, when I overtook... Fernando in 2012 in Brazil, Monisha was telling me that uh, as soon as I overtook, Stefano Dominicari was uh, messaged Monisha straight away. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Get out of the way. Of course, you had the Ferrari engine, didn't you? Yeah. Yes. And he got a championship. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Kamui, it's been lovely to talk to you. You're 34. Do you have a dream of coming back to Formula One? Or do you think that chapter is finished now? No, I prefer having beer, watching Formula One on TV. It's, uh, it's enough. <laughs> I think I was so thankful all the you know, Formula One fans to be part of the game in the Formula One. I enjoy a lot. I feel I have a really good memory there. And all the you know, no, guys there around, even after the race, you know, we have a really good connection uh, with them, some of people. So... I had really thanks with all the guys here, but uh, I prefer now having beer, watching Formula One TV. I'm doing different races. I think this should be enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, Kamui, 
good luck at Lamore this year. Good luck with everything you're doing this year, actually. And, and thanks again for your time. Thank you very much. What a wonderful chat. And given where the conversation ended, I think Kamui's clearly at ease with his life and his career. He's so interesting to talk to, isn't he? I love getting his thoughts on why Toyota's Formula One foray ended in failure. And his description of how to get the most out of a Pirelli tyre was fascinating. How detailed was that? Take note, everybody. Kamui, thanks for your time. It was great to catch up and I look forward to seeing you again at Suzuka later in the year. And before I go, it's time to sound the gong and remind you to send in any stories, anecdotes or chance meetings you've had with Kamui. And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. So send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. There weren't so many about last week's guest, Andreas Seidel, but I suppose that says a lot about the man who is all about getting on with the job. You did have some lovely observations, though, and here's a few. Philip Shipev got in touch to say this. One of the best episodes of the show, and as an engineer, I can really say that Andreas Seidel is a prime example for that if you love something, put up some good work and keep pushing, you can achieve your dreams. Indeed so, Philip. Andreas is an inspiring character, and it's clear that he's doing great things at McLaren. Martin Andy Lulak said, I'm so surprised how funny and cool Andreas really is. Just from the pictures and a few radio messages, he was more like an android to me up to now. Thanks, Tom. Super interesting as always. Yet, yeah, Martin, he is funny. Every time I speak to Andreas, even if it's just for a quick chat in passing, he always says something that makes me smile. And Dan M offered this. That anecdote about calling Mario Tyson until he got fed up and finally caved in was gold. And it was proof, Dan, that if you're tenacious enough, you really can get where you want to go. I've absolutely loved reading those and all of the other messages you sent in, and I really hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And please keep sending your feedback in because we love it. Now, I'll be back next week with another great personality, or perhaps I should say personalities from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.